So welcome to another episode of PH Divas. We are a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And I'm Dr. Zainyao, representing the humanities. And I'm very excited to talk to an amazing interdisciplinary duo today, Ellie and Divya, about a number of different initiatives they've been working on to address issues of systemic racism in their, in their disciplines. And so this interview today will be in two parts. And first, we're going to talk about this exciting conference that we put together on space science. So thank you for joining me today, um, Ali and Divya. And you'd like to introduce yourselves first? Sure. Divya, do you want to go first? Sure. Hi, I'm Divya Prasad. I'm a planetary scientist and a PhD student at UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory. Um, in the office, I studied the surface of Mars and also the surface of the icy moons of Saturn using 3D images. Uh, outside the office, I am a mess. No, I'm a composer. <laughs> I'm a writer. Um, I'm working on a book of poetry right now that it's in its final stages. Um and also trying to be an advocate for other disabled students of color and also really interested in space ethics. And that's something that I do a lot of public speaking around as well. Hi, I'm Ellie Armstrong. I am a PhD candidate at UCL as well. Um, my PhD looks at queer feminist approaches to pedagogy in science museums with a particular focus on gender, sexuality and race in the galleries of London museums. Um, outside of the research work that I do, I'm really interested in how we translate and also um, from the ground up build academic work outside of journals and articles. And so I do a lot of work in kind of practical um, research. So that includes things like giving tours, running podcasts, running events like this one uh, that we're going to talk about today with Divya. And I try to push for systemic change in the way that we represent and talk about STEM in the cultural sector. Well, I'm very excited to get the both of you together. I met both of them separately, and I feel both times I felt like it was incredibly serendipitous and really cool. Yeah, it's just really exciting for me to bring you together. Now I, want, I need to ask you a question mm -hmm. that people always ask me and Liz is like, how did you meet and how did you come up with the idea for this conference in space science? <laughs> um, Ellie, do you want me to tell a story? Yeah, you tell the story. <laughs> okay. Um, so Zion, you and I met at a symposium called Decolonize STEM uh, at UCL. And um, Ellie emailed me after the symposium and said, hey, I heard about your talk at the symposium that my department ran and saw your tweets about it. Do you want to have lunch and, and sort of talk about, you know, um, our, our shared interests? And I didn't really realize at the time that was Ellie's polite way of saying, let's please be friends. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we met up in London and had lunch and we, we talked for, I don't know, maybe two and a half, three hours about just how angry we were at the culture in space science and about like white supremacy in the history of space exploration or so-called exploration and like coloniality of, of space. And it was incredible. And we also just realized, I think, that we liked each other a lot. Um, so we kept talking after that and um, we became friends. And then um, we saw this call for um, the researcher-led initiative award through UCL. And we said, you know, we've been we've been sort of floating this idea of having some sort of event that bridges our two sides of this of this issue or th these issues. And we had originally considered, you know, do we do it at my laboratory? Do we do it at UCL um, to talk about, for example, uh, the 
the legacy of women in um, British space history or race in British space history, which isn't really something that is talked about too much. Uh, so we saw this and we thought, okay, um, what do we want to do? And we met up maybe a maximum of one time in person. So yeah, we uh, had this okay. like amazing lunch. We had this amazing lunch, and then we met once in a library and had this like whispered conversation about what we were doing. And that um, was it. Yeah. <laughs> so, in person, in person, we, like we should say that this this whole thing did not like spontaneously like appear from us having met twice. Like, no, no, yeah, it was a lot of work virtually, um, which I think impacted what happened, but. Uh, so, so we were floating these ideas. Um, we wrote this proposal, essentially just wrote our list of dream people to have speak about uh, space and society. And we thought, well, they're asking for names. So we're just going to pick like, you know, the people we really admire. And we originally thought, um, so yeah, originally we were thinking about an in-person conference and then we were thinking, okay, we, well, we want to spend a lot of our budget on, for example, ac- access measures and paying our speakers well. And it turned out that by the end of, of planning all of that, we didn't really have enough money to have an in-person conference if we wanted that many fantastic speakers. So we thought, hey, why don't we do it virtually? And of course, this was this was January. Um, and we submitted it. And we thought, okay, okay, well, we'll hear back in a couple of months. And then we heard back March, the first week, second week of March. So while everything was shifting virtual, um, so we were really excited because we had been already thinking about how virtual events uh, during the COVID era seem very inaccessible and, and uh, we didn't necessarily like the models or we were really intrigued by some of the models and all of a sudden we got this money to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then it kicked off. Um, so all so that it- was also planned virtually <laughs> from, yeah. from our friendship. Basically. So in a way, it's like you already prepared for um, self-isolation and quarantine communication and maintaining <laughs> yes. um, forms of intimacy. Uh, but yes. I think we need to dial it back to uh, uh, a more basic level first, which is to explain mm-hmm. how space science is colonial for our listeners who may not be as familiar. I mean, I think that we could even start with like you know, the famous slogan from Star Trek, to boldly go where no man has gone before. And the way it sort of models right. itself on Columbus and this idea of an uninhabited land as, which erases the indigenous people. But would you like to expand mm-hmm. on that, uh, how the coloniality um, infiltrates space science, especially if people want to just think of it as progress and happy things? And yeah. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if you want, I'll take that, Ellie. Yes, please. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess you encompass it in the idea, the the sense or the uh, pressing need to explore, um, where we reinscribe this idea of terra nullius that was used in uh, Western expansion um, and other expansionist ideals of uh, expansion being something that unifies humanity, whoever humanity is, uh, or which uh, is a, you know a positive endeavor um, socially and economically as well. And um, so there, there is that narrative, and that's something that Ellie looks at as well with, with museums, yeah. um, which is such important work. And then also on the t- sort of technology and industri- industry side, um, you know, space science has always been embedded with the military industrial complex. So, for example, NASA was a branch of the U.S. military and in technically recent times became not a branch of the military, but all of its contracts are pretty much military or defense companies. So it's it's still very much a, a defense-focused uh, field where the technology that we work on is either built by defense companies or for in-parallel defense uses. 
Um, mm. So, you know, anything that we do, for example, uh, cameras on Mars that I use were built by companies that build drones that bomb Pakistan, which which is near my homeland, right? Um, and and those two things aren't really disconnected because those cameras are also used for Earth satellites, right? And uh, for example, and I'm speaking as an American, uh, the U.S. violates space treaties uh, with regards to espionage and using um, weapons uh, that rely on on space technology. So it it is a vital question, and it is one that is. Um, very difficult to bring up, I think, in the culture that we've built around space science as scientists, but also as the public, yeah. where uh, it's very tied to this jingoist narrative. And, it, and, that's, mm-hmm. and that's true for Europe. I mean, European Space Agency is guilty of this. But also, you know, if you look at the culture around, say, Elon Musk, where there's this idea <sighs> that we have an imperative <laughs> to go, right? Yeah. And I won't, I won't get too much into Elon right now, but same with Jeff Bezos or or virgin or whatever, you know, we have this imperative to go and, you know, there aren't people out there, so we can use the terms colonize. And it doesn't really mean the same thing, except to, of course, our technology is used to colonize people on earth and also is reflected in who we send to space, how we approach space as a natural um, world. Yep. And, uh, you know, all of that is settler ideology. So it, it is difficult. It's something that is difficult to talk about because, we, we don't want to talk about it. And that's, that's just science and Western scientists not wanting to understand their work as political. Um, but also it, it is a very tidy sort of neat little puzzle piece in a broader military narrative in the Western world. So I think that's my 101. Um, and then from Ellie's point of view, I don't know if you want to talk about sort of the, the narrative and the culture and, and museums yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess like what I what I'd like to maybe just like add onto your really beautiful and expansive like exploration of this in the context of science is that like uh much like colonialism of the past, like it's deeply embedded not only in the work that's actually done, but in the fantasies that are constructed around it as well. Um and exactly like you mentioned um with the Star Trek, um like Star Trek, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like I don't. God, I'm so always so confused about Star Trek and Star Wars, um, which is terrible. Okay. I know. I know. Which is a disaster. Are you somebody who um, <laughs> I, I don't even know anymore. Um, <laughs> I could tell the difference when I see them. Um, but the, the 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 fantasy is about like it, it, the, the 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 colonialism is also about the fantasy that's constructed around them as well. Um, and the way that we take ownership or perceive to take ownership of particular things. So it's something that I'm interested in that happens in museums is like about displaying things like even things like rocks. So, for example, one of the case is case examples I use in my um, thesis is about like a, a meteorite from Oman. Um, and like, why is this meteorite from Oman in the Natural History Museum? Um, and like, why, like, there, there's a whole embedded, like, it's not just about the people, it's not just about the technology, it's also about like, this idea that we can take these pieces of uh, re- like land or resources, um, and also claim ownership over them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, the, like, there's a reason why Oman doesn't have a well developed meteorite, like, faculty within universities in Oman. Um, and but is like apart from Antarctica the single uh place where most lunar and Martian meteorites are collected in the world um why is that I had no idea 
it has it just has very good conditions for preserving them in the way that they fell so it's like very arid and like there's very little erosion happening on the land much like antarctica there's like little weathering that happens to the rocks Mm -hmm. that fall there um and so like you know this is not this is not divorced from um the british like imperial project in oman in the past and like the kind of like pseudo colonization the like de facto colonization of that space um and that that also informs the way that we like show these things in the gallery space so there's lots of narratives in in particular in science museums around like this idea that you can go into a new space and like you can use these instruments to understand the rocks and the land and that that you know then you are a good scientist but like also a good colonizer um mm. and that these th- <laughs> yeah um and that these things are not like disconnected and like for example I was talking to a friend about the natural history museum collection the other day and we were talking about the um she'd looked at like how many objects the natural history museum in london has um from nigeria um that are digitized on the natural history museum collection and there are more objects from nigeria that are digitized which is not the entire collection um from nigeria at the natural history museum in london than there are the whole of the natural history museum in nigeria like the national natural history museum and so I think like when we think about telling these narratives in public spaces, in sci-fi culture, in pop culture, in the music that we use, in the language that we use to describe these things, you know, in even in things like when we think about the types of spacesuits that mm-hmm. um, Elon Musk is making for the new astronaut court that he's, you know, imagining of the future, these things come from specific ideology like specific cultural narratives about what these people should look like or what that Mm -hmm. that material should look like and these are not divorced from the historic colonialism as well Um, I I will say uh oh sorry I just as an add-in um when I visited SpaceX one of the people working on the spacesuit said that their missive from Elon was purely that it should look cooler than Star Trek just to tie it back to what you mentioned (laughs) (laughs) yep um yeah and there's and there's a lot of along with uh like racialization in these spaces there's a lot of like gendered narratives as well um around who is appropriate for doing this kind of quote-unquote exploration um who should be at the forefront of these missions what like why why have we ended up i mean not like by accident that there are like white american men leading these kind of projects um and the, these things, I think, tie back to like also a, an idea about who is it, who it is appropriate to be like that in that position as well. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, yeah. at mm-hmm. the same time, they're expected to represent all of humanity because that's what they're doing. They're yes. doing it for the human race, right? Yes, yes, exactly. For all mankind, I believe is the phrase that is. Uh, oh yes, yeah, right. humanity. Yeah. I made the yeah, two yeah. modern mankind. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think that the, like these ideas of like the cultural and the scientific mm-hmm. and the military and uh, like are are all co-constructing each other as we oh. go through. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, no, you go. Oh, no, no. Also, I was going to relate it to um, we did mention like launch facilities, mm-hmm. which are typically on uh, on seas territory. So Woomera in Australia, uh, for example, yep. or. Um, the European Space, the whatever, the Guyana Space Center in French Guyana, which was essentially uh, France's move to recolonize French mm-hmm. Guyana yep. a couple mm-hmm. of decades ago. So, as, as well yeah. as you know, as well as launch facilities in uh, America, like in the yes. U.S., um, yes. in Florida, in um, California. 
mm-hmm. um, and and also you know examples of this kind of thing happening in Sweden in uh, Sápmi as well. So it's it's kind of all over the world. I mean, I guess because the facilities that you need for launching a rocket like perceived to be empty space mostly coincide mm-hmm. with places that people perceive to be empty because they are colonizers. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, again, like even these kind of, and this is something that we really brought up in the conference and we heard this from a lot of different perspectives, both the like enmeshment of culture and science. So I think Janet Vitesse spoke to that really well Mm -hmm. um, about the way that like science fiction is picked up and used by scientific communities and how they kind of co-construct each other, but also Mm -hmm. these kind of, these, these constructions around where where the actions of space science happen. So we had uh, Noe Goodyear and Tana Joseph and Alice uh, Gorman talking about these kind of co-constructions with the natural environment, which I think was... So, yeah, this is the segue that I wanted to... This fantastic background that you gave us from two different disciplinary perspectives on space science. And so what... Uh, which audiences were you imagining reaching with this conference and how did you um, choose the different speakers that you're really excited to bring together? Um, How did you construct panels, for instance? Like, did you mix up the disciplines? Um, What type of people did you find were interested? Oh my gosh, so many questions. Um, Yeah, so um, as Divya mentioned, we uh, basically put together like a what I would consider to be like a fantasy football team of amazing speakers, where we were like, these are all our favorite speakers, uh, our favorite academics and theorists in these areas. And um, they've like produced really interesting and informative works that have shaped both my research and Divya's research. Um, And then we basically asked them all and almost everyone said yes, um, because we were like incredibly lucky. Um, and I think like it was at a t- we happened to ask people at the start of lockdown, which I think maybe helped <laughs> um, because it was like enough time after people had moved into lockdown, but before kind of people assumed that you would be able to do business as usual from home. Um, mm. So I think we were like maybe quite lucky with the timing and also because it was quite innovative. Um, a, a few of our speakers were like, this sounds really different and really exciting. And, you know, like not just like the contact, not just that the conference is different, but like the format is different and it would be cool to be part of something, something exciting. Um, but we specifically constructed our panels. So the speakers that we invited, 12 speakers to be uh, cross-disciplinary. So all the panels consisted of people from different fields ranging from people who work in policy, people who are scientists, people who are um, like academic political theorists or social scientists, artists, um, and Divya, um, who was a wonderful speaker. Um, not that Divya is separate to these categories, but um, <laughs> was a, was a, was a she stands in a category on her own. Um, but we not only were we particularly keen to get a cross disciplinary panels but also to make sure that they were diverse in other ways as well um such that um we had 12 speakers and no white men of science no white men speaking on the panel that's impressive (laughs) Um, we only had one man actually yeah i know and we got uh we got told that that was deeply unfair because it was only eight percent of our panels were men and that did not reflect the space industry at all and um (laughs) that was that must have been so difficult i mean no one's ever had that problem before right right other group (laughs) exactly i mean god the poor men um uh but we like particularly we're looking for people who are doing 
like inter- like interesting stuff and i think we we chose people because they were leading like were leading theorists in their area um and it and not not like just because they weren't white men if that makes sense um mm-hmm. because we really wanted to make sure that the future of space science doesn't look like the past um and that we can like f- provide space for and like platform um like non-white man voices in this area (laughs) yeah and I think to be fair the way the cards fell was that we were we were looking at who was doing this research who came to mind to us who Mm -hmm. we'd cited and it just so happened that that was the gender and and ethnicity distribution that we got in the end yeah so um which I think is really telling when you think about how Mm -hmm. people program yeah. other things yeah. exactly. in space science exactly and we did so I mean specifically when I'm talking about this we did have a couple of people say that they couldn't do it for various reasons and when we were looking for other people to invite this was something we were thinking about mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but um yeah no somebody messaged us and was like how did you get all these amazing speakers did you just ask everyone and they said yes and we were like yes <laughs> that is that is kind of what happened and it was really cool um that like that so many people wanted to be a part of it we opened we then opened like a posters session so we like invited people to submit we solicited the speakers and we invited people to submit posters on topics that they wanted to address in the context of space science in context um and that was also interesting because i think we got to be introduced to a bunch of other really cool theorists um who we may not necessarily otherwise have come across um Mm -hmm. which was really exciting and like hopefully if we did this again we might be able to kind of bring some of them in as speakers um in the future and they covered a range of different perspectives that we hadn't covered in the talks as well which was nice but there was this like beautiful synergy where we like had people who were speaking about stuff and then like other speakers who were talking about the same thing but from a slightly different angle and then like posters that were addressing similar topics and so there was this like we just were like the week before we went live with it we just kept messaging messaging each other being like oh my gosh all the talks like are beautifully overlapping they all like they all like build this amazing complex web of uh scholarship around these areas that is different to how these things have been conceived in the past and like like this is exciting to see this new network of um cross-disciplinary approaches that produce similar outcomes and similar like pushes in the same direction towards changing this industry and changing the way that we culturally talk about this and changing the way that we think about it so I think that was really Mm -hmm. exciting for us it seems to only make sense that because space colonialism operates across multiple fronts that one needs an interdisciplinary approach and to only do it through single discipline is perhaps to just buy into the sort of partitioning artificial partitioning of these fields of knowledge which also allow one disenable people from addressing the, the problem in all its complexity so yeah. yeah I think it makes a lot of sense methodologically what you ended up doing yeah mm-hmm. um one thing I was curious about um that Divya mentioned is that the how to make an online conference that is more accessible um and I'd love to hear what sort of techniques you came across um I've been running a number of trans writing seminars with a colleague and this has definitely been an issue for us in terms of figuring out how can we get say like live captions to appear and whatever app that we're using and how if people can't have the program maybe you have to just mirror our screens and a lot of complicated stuff so what did you find that you did differently yeah I think um it was it was difficult because there aren't 
and certainly weren't in March a lot of resources about this. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the access measures came in the fact that we flipped the classroom. Um, so we had all of our material online a week ahead of our live event. And so a bit more of the focus went into the quality of the material that was going on that website. So all of our main uh, invited talks were fully closed captioned with transcripts, and we really pushed for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also made sure we said, you know, contingent upon acceptance to our conference for posters, you need to follow these guidances. So that was something that I uh, collated from various um, web access guides. So it, it was... It was a problem sort of of finding a synergy between web access guidelines and in-person live event guidelines and uh, coming up with a way to guide people to make sure that their content was screen reader friendly or else had captions and transcripts. Um, So it was looking at a lot of resources about, you know, what fonts you should use, color contrast guidelines making sure people had access to tools to test for colorblindness, um, for scientific figures. And uh, so it was borrowing from a lot of uh, guides that disabled people have written for science specifically, which I found very useful, mm-hmm. or else how to deliver a, um, a poster at a conference in an accessible way or a talk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that was met with varying success. Um, I think most people gave it a good shot. And I think a lot of people were accustomed to delivering a typical poster. So we did have to push a little bit. And uh, if we do this again, I think we need to push a bit harder. Mm -hmm. But um, so on that end, it was it was a lot, but it was also pretty straightforward in that we want to make sure things are screen reader friendly. We want to make sure that things are audio friendly and in that regard giving a week or ideally more I think than a week mm-hmm. um, lets people do things in their own time so if you have um, say for example can't pay attention to something for a long time you can take a step away or if you have caring responsibilities you can do something in bite-sized you know portions or if you can't look at a screen too long or if you get exhausted by reading captions, which I know a lot of people do, then you get to step away. Mm-hmm. And so it was giving people the space to engage with uh, content in in their own way. And I don't think we did it perfectly. I think, um, you know, there was so, so much else we could probably do, especially with more money. Yes. But uh, so, but that was certainly our focus. And I think with the live event, that that's when um, it, get, it got a bit complicated where you know, Teams has live captioning and like even the best live captioning uh, services of which Teams is not a part (laughs) (laughs) will still, will still fail, especially with different types of accents. Or if, um, you know, if you want to uh, speak, for example, and um, you may have a a speech disorder, that kind of thing, it, it doesn't really, these sort of algorithms can't cope with that. And that is something that goes into the racism of, of algorithms and, and yeah. ableism of algorithms as well. Um, so that, that was a bit challenging. We did say, you know, we will have live captions, but that's not an easy fix. And um, so I think I, I've certainly been reflecting on that yeah. and, and how to do that better. But we also had like a tech, text and video going. So we did have measures where if anyone asked a question, we would always read it out loud and type it. Mm-hmm. Any sort of notice we gave about our conference policy, we said it and we typed it. 
um, any sort of introduction. We did both. Mm-hmm. It was it was a bit problematic in that we had so many people writing in the chat, yeah. <laughs> which was so fantastic, but also meant that, it, um, for example, like if you have trouble paying attention, it was probably really overwhelming. Um, I know I found it overwhelming myself. So I think it it's it's difficult. It's really difficult. And I think it's just important to have the conversations and like approach the people you mm-hmm. want to give the access to, which I think is something that we'll be doing post-conference as we yeah. continue to re- regroup around uh, ab- about what happened and, and how, what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. I, I think like also I will say like we foregrounded the access on the materials that were put up online rather than the live event because that's going to that remains online and those are things that people can continue to access mm-hmm. um that doesn't mean it's like a perfect fix but it does mean that more people can access that material even after the event has happened uh mm-hmm. which I think was like a valuable thing to think about as well like the, we we made an explicit decision not to record the day the, the the material on the day so that people could feel like they could share you know in kind of like a, a closed house scenario um but obviously that does mean that 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 material is kind of lost to people who weren't there as well but um yeah I think that like because we only received a small grant from UCL there was like um, we had to think about where we were spending that money and what what was going to maybe make the longest term impact if that makes sense in terms of Mm -hmm. being able to do that work yeah and that makes me think because we were also operating on a grant from UCL like it would be really useful if perhaps different granting agencies would consider a percentage being set aside specifically for accessibility purposes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've seen other people suggest this as well, that like, uh, so friends of mine who do grant reviewing, especially for like learned societies, um, are increasingly pushing for there to be a like kind of thing that's like, if you do not have material, like specific stuff within your application about how you will be like developing this event with access focus, then like they shouldn't be allowed to award the grant and I don't know how far they've got in terms of like pushing this through um but I think it's really valuable to get that kind of recognition that like if you're not spending money on access then you are not making an accessible event these things don't like magically appear um and that these are Mm -hmm. that's an imperative consideration to have in developing an event PHDiva's podcast has been going strong for five years. We are more excited than ever about the world of podcasting as academics. We want to keep bringing you great content. And to do that, we need your help with the cost of production. That's right, Zai. Through Patreon, you will support our 2020 vision for PHDiva's podcast. Better features, new equipment, and you'll get exclusive access to original content like the bloopers reel for this ad, by the way, and our reading list and outtake. Propose an episode. Get a special shout out. See how exciting this is all going to be? Help us take the podcast to the next level. Click on the Patreon link to find out the many ways that you can support us. And as always, even if you can't support us financially, you can always help out by following us on Facebook and Twitter under PhDMS Podcast. It helps a lot when you rate us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So back to your conference, how you gave us a little bit of insight into some of the, the presentations that really excited you. And I was hoping you could talk us talk us through some of the highlights. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, all so, of it was a So highlight. many. I literally, like, all day, I was like, this is so amazing. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, Noe's presentation was no, my favorite. Um, yeah. And when I, we watched, like, when the videos all came in, 
um, from our speakers. We kind of watched them to make sure that there, there were no glitches or anything throughout the film before we sent them off for transcription. And um, yeah, when I watched Noah's, I like cried quite a lot. Um, I, we heard from a lot of people that they cried. Yeah. At the end. In a, in a re- like in a really packed... Um, I, I'll read you the, uh, I have the abstract up. I think that's probably the, the yeah. best way to talk about it. So in this talk, I transport us to Manakia, a site of an upwelling of Aloha Aina, love of land and country, activism and protection of the sacred summit. Following Tracy uh, Banavanua Mars's call to recognize how women have, be- have long been crucial to decolonization and independence movements in Oceania. Focus on the ways Wahina women and Mahu transgender and non-binary folks have upheld leadership roles in the Mauna movement. Argue that one of the Manakia movement's most transformative potentials lies in the ritual investment of Kanaka Mali's political leadership unbound by a Western binary gender system. This is an invitation to remake futures against economies of dispossession and extractive research practices, which I think <laughs> gets into how powerful this, this talk was. It was incredibly moving. Like, and I think, um, I hope for people who are, um, especially research scientists who work in the telescopes in um, Hawaii, was a like a, a really informative way of uh, ma- material to like look at and listen to. I know, like, I am already uh, on the like, like already thinking about that space as a as a like an environment that is subject to western like knowledge especially scientific knowledge like colonialism and it's something that i write about in my thesis but i think that like the way noah talked about it was incredibly powerful um and it's clear that like noah has been really involved in the work that's happening there and i think that was really valuable and it's something that came through in a a couple of the other talks as well where people have been really involved um in the work that's happening to transform these spaces so mm-hmm. yeah, so I like I felt similarly about Cynthia's piece as well, which I think was really um, was about art, art practice as a way of engaging with bridging and and valuing um, indigenous knowledge in Mexico alongside scientific knowledge of of their like geographical and planetary spaces, which I thought was really interesting. I don't know mm-hmm. what else you like. What else was your favorite, Divya? Ooh. Um... I find myself always having to look at this this website and just take it all in. Yeah. Um, I think, ooh, uh, Tana's talk, also in the yes. decolonizing space uh, session. Mm-hmm. So she talked about the myth of decolonization in South African astronomy. So she she's talking around uh, the square kilometer array and also just talking about how um, her own experiences really in this very like colonially entrenched field where South African astronomy was pretty much born out of colonialism, at, like, you know, as it exists. Um, and that was really powerful. And I also thought that um, it was really fascinating. And I, I liked this perspective. We had more of uh, a sort of science talk from Ufoma talking about her work um satellite earth observation for environmental management in West Africa. So she was talking about building technologies to work with uh, workers who are impacted by um, hazardous waste in their working environment and sort of the science end of that, but also um, looking at 
management tools that can be used by people mm-hmm. in the community, which was really great and yeah. really good perspective of what we can actually do with satellite data that isn't horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering then, how many people in the hard scientists did you manage to get to participate as as audience members or as presenters? Because um, I guess my experience has been like, I, I definitely know the people in, this, in STEM who are very committed to these sort of things. But then they tell me how, you know, they're they're very much a minority often in their departments. And so did you feel like you were able to do the outreach work to bring in people who might not always be drawn to an event that would have decolonization in the title? Oh, I, um. I think we, we, I think what I w- would say is that we initially thought that we had reached quite a lot of these people because we opened a sign up list, like a register interest list before the conference went live. And the register interest list, um, happened to open like at the start of lockdown and we were like it's an experimental virtual conference and lots of scientists signed up then like mm-hmm. people who I would consider to be like big name scientists yes. where we were, we were like are you sure it's so and so that signed up <laughs> like really um uh but then like some of those people didn't register for the conference afterwards so I think there was like a feeling that this was exciting because it was a virtual conference and it was something different but then like didn't follow through to like actually attending or seeing the stuff um Mm -hmm. however we did get some like very exciting signups kind of like very close to the time as well and like there was an unfortunate problem with technology where we thought UCL had access to the kind of like live events part of teams that would allow us to have up to 10,000 people to be part of the event. Um, But actually they only have access to the meetings function, which is only up to 250 people. So sadly people who signed up very late didn't get access to the live event that we did because we had to cap the people we could invite to it at 250 people um but we did have, like we did have some people from some fairly senior people at nasa sign up in the end which was quite yes. exciting uh, i think oh sorry you go um i think yeah so so i guess speaking as someone like embedded in planetary science in two countries i think what i saw was a lot of space scientists and colleagues who were already doing work around um at the very least diversity, if not about uh, broader social issues like um, and how space fits into that, uh, who attended. But then also I had a lot of, of British space science colleagues who were, um, who were pure scientists who were like really, really interested and showed up. And I think that That's might have wonderful. been the power of Twitter in, in part in that I think um, planetary science the community seems to be very active on social media. And so I think word did spread. Um, so speaking from like the names I saw on the list, I was pretty surprised because I think a lot of maybe people who uh, maybe talk about diversity, but maybe not necessarily attend this type of thing um, did show up, which was really great. Yeah. But yeah, we did, we did see a drop off from the register interest. Um, but then we also saw an uptick in yeah. people who were interested in the format. So yes. Yeah, and it, and I think it was just it was just like when we saw there were, it was the the people who were like really senior like <laughs> physics professors who been on TV yeah exactly who were like yeah, I was expressing interest I was like are we sure like um, and they kind of like I mean I guess like slightly unsurprised that they maybe didn't sign up for the conference but like 
yeah uh, definitely I think like in terms of like a grassroots like younger early career researchers we definitely mm-hmm. had lots of them and we've got like you catch us for this podcast between asking for feedback and actually evaluating all the feedback um but we also asked a lot of people about why they were interested in coming and being a part of our conference um and there were a lot of people who said like I work in planetary science but I don't really think about this stuff that much and I want to learn more which I think was really encouraging. I think this sounds all incredibly encouraging and even if those senior scientists didn't end up participating in the end I think the fact that they signed up maybe even encouraged others in the field perhaps who might um, respect and admire them correct and so that in itself is still useful Mm -hmm. and I, I know you just said that you're in between receiving all your feedback and processing it but I'm just wondering if we could um, maybe end this part of the discussion with you gesturing towards some of the outcomes that you hope I mean I think this is something we kind of like touched on talking about before we did the event but like we're both at the end of our PhDs and are in kind of like a like a bit of a position about whether this will be something that would be feasible or tenable into the future so I think like at the moment there's also a particular focus on like this event as a standalone but maybe as part of something that might happen again but we I think it received some really exciting um initial feedback from um people who attended our conference Divya do you maybe want to talk about some of the initial feedback yeah I think I mean, my mind immediately goes to one particular pie chart that our feedback form generated, which made me very, very happy, which was that 24% of our attendees identified as disabled or neurodivergent, where mm. uh, just about 4% of academics in the UK and the US, I think it's comparable, are disabled. Mm-hmm. So, um, and 20 to 25% of the UK and US population are disabled. So we were reflecting more of the societal distribution of disabled people than academia normally does, which may, which is very pleasing to me as a disabled person. I'm just thinking that even like, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, our, the measures that we took were pretty small. And I think they widened the participation of our conference massively. And that's something that we did see in comments. And we got loads and loads of emails the day after, which were just really emotional to read where people were saying, I, I'm, you know, I'm scared to go to a conference because I see my harassers there, or mm-hmm. I don't get to go to conferences because they're never accessible to me. Or, you know, I've never seen so many women speak yeah. at, a, at an event. Yeah. And I mean, even if it was just five people who said that, that makes, that makes, makes a huge difference. Yeah. But it was, it was a lot of people who said, you know, this was just reaffirming to, to see people who look like me talking their expertise and being brilliant yeah. and me having access to that information, having it be free. Yeah. And then also having the safe space on the live event uh, to express really intimate things where mm-hmm. I think a lot of people told very difficult stories. I know I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was just this very warm environment that we established where uh, I think part of this was because we couldn't invite everyone. We asked, um, you know, if you can't invite, please give your space to someone else. So we knew that everyone there really wanted to be there mm-hmm. and uh, things weren't being recorded and we could just talk about how crappy things were and how exciting and affirming it was to speak to each other and how much we wanted to read each other's work and 
um, gush about each other. (laughs) And that was such a beautiful moment. And I think a lot of the feedback reflects that. And and that's just, that's just so fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that's been really exciting as well is like, as Divya says, like there are lots of people from the planetary science community who came to this conference. And then the measures that we like, implemented like our conference policy and also work that we did around like gender and recording gender expression in feedback forms and stuff like this have been picked up by other planetary scientists and are being kind of featured on posters or in white papers um, around ways of transforming the field which I think is also really exciting to see not Mm -hmm. not just the like content but also the structure take on a little bit of a life of its own after the event yeah I think I think it was clear to a lot of people the connection between the content mm-hmm. and the format, yes. which was, you know, our format was about access. Our content was about who gets to access knowledge, yeah. right? For sure. um, and we talked about that in organizing and how wonderful it was to do that yeah. and to really center that. And I think that had such an impact and hopefully continues to have an impact in our field. Yes. We can hope. say that you're making space in space science. Sorry, I really yeah. wanted to just, just make a bad pun. Um, well, thank, thank you so much.